You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists, and for the last 11 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, UFC 288 was over the weekend. It was... It was a bit of a nondescript pay-per-view, I think. Technically, both of the five-round main event and co-main event ended in upsets, and they were fine, but really, this event kind of lacked the blockbuster feel of some of the other recent UFC pay-per-views. We have talked at length about what seems to be the UFC's current business model, and that is to kind of throw out whatever fights are available every week during these ESPN Plus fight nights, but then to really stack up and load the pay-per-view events so each one feels special and feels like something people would actually want to spend the 80 bucks on or whatever it is. This card, to me, just didn't really have that big feeling. Aljamain Sterling retained his title with a win over Henry Cejudo. Bilal Muhammad made his case as a top welterweight contender with his win over Gilbert Burns. We're going to talk about all of that stuff coming up on this show. Uh, But let's start with what was, in my mind, obviously the biggest story of UFC 288, and that is Marab Dwalishwili stealing Sean O'Malley's jacket. Yes. Stealing stealing Sean O'Malley's Michael Jackson thriller jacket in the cage after the main event. This, to me, was the highlight of the night. Here's the thing, Ben. Some people are attracted to MMA for the violence, and some people perhaps are attracted to it to see the strategy or the uh, the great physical battle of wills. Me? I watch it for shit like Marab Dwalashvili stealing Sean O'Malley's jacket. Uh, what about you? Know, you? The best part was... It's really more of a finder's keeper situation than it is stealing, you know? Sean O'Malley got to take off the jacket, throw it down, make a big show of it, and Marab just happens to be standing back there. And what I love is how we see Sean O'Malley show up in the jacket, we see him take off the jacket, we see him in this heated face-off, and then we just sort of see Marab show up in the background. He just slides in, (laughs) and the look on his face. The look on his face. He's so proud of himself that he has this jacket on. I hope one day to experience a joy as pure as the one Marab Dallasvili is experiencing when he's standing there and he's looking at the camera like, guys, do you see? Yeah. Do you see I'm wearing this jacket? Uh And he doesn't want to make a big deal of it. He's just going to stand there in the background and wait for us to notice and be like, (laughs) do you see it? I'm wearing the jacket, guys. I'm sitting at home like, is that Marat? It is. He put the jacket on. Oh, so, you know, he saved that face off, honestly, by wearing the jacket because the face off was terrible. Even, you know, it has to be shitty for Dana White to come out afterwards and be like, that was a mistake, which he said about this face off between O'Malley and Aljamain Sterling. That's how you know it was shitty. And frankly, if we didn't have Marab wearing the Michael Jackson thriller jacket, that would have been a total loss. Instead, highlight of the night. Yeah. No, that that was really the greatest part. And honestly, you're right to say, like, this pay-per-view as a whole, especially with the way it ended, 
with both the last two fights, it felt just like a little sleepy, yeah. you know, where the, we had the Bilal Muhammad and Gilbert Burns fight where it feels like we sort of establish early on what's going on. And the commentary team going to spend a lot of time talking about how Bilal Muhammad is essentially beating a one-armed man here. And that yeah. doesn't really hype anybody up. Did not do him any favors. No. And then we get into the main event where it's just like, you know, it's a close competitive fight, but not necessarily in the most exciting of ways. If you had told me going into UFC 288 that there was only going to be one finish on the main card, brother, I sure wouldn't have guessed that finish would come in the women's strawweight division. And I sure wouldn't have guessed that Jessica Andrade would be on the receiving end of said finish. That's kind of made the biggest surprise of the main card. No, I agree. That's that's totally shocking stuff. If if you care to dig that deep to think about it that way, uh, you know what Marab has to do now is, I assume he had to give that jacket back to Sean O'Malley at some point. I think that might have been what we were arguing about as everybody was leaving the cage was yeah whether, whether possession was in fact nine tenths <laughs> of the law. <laughs> Uh, if he did have to give the jacket back to Sean O'Malley, he has to go buy the exact same jacket. 100%. And wear it all the time. Wear it to every public event that he has ever goes to. He has to wear the Michael Jackson Thriller jacket. You could do a lot worse than to have that be your gimmick. No, you know? I agree. And who, show of hands to everyone who was surprised that Sean O'Malley wore the Michael Jackson Thriller jacket with no shirt underneath. Of course not. Why would you wear a shirt underneath your Michael Jackson Thriller jacket? You know, <laughs> Why that's would just you? silly. Why Maybe Marab's thing could be that whenever he has a new rival in the division, he will start to dress like them. <laughs> oh, it's even better than Henry Cejudo getting a, a custom-made pillow with your face on it. Or totally whatever. better. And yeah. it's like, he the, even better, he could pretend that he doesn't notice he's doing it. <laughs> he's just like, what? I just saw this on Amazon. I thought it looked yeah. cool. It was on sale. You know me. I'm a In sale my shopper. size. Yeah. Love a bargain. Remember, you're listening to the co-main event podcast proper. And right now is a very exciting time for us for two reasons. First, because this week marks the 11th anniversary of us starting this show back in 2012. And two, to commemorate that anniversary, we're kicking off Pledge Month for the CME Patreon page. As many of you know, we are a completely independent show. We don't have a big media company backing us. We don't have an established MMA website backing us. This isn't a UFC-owned podcast where a former fighter and a C-list comedian run down a list of pre-approved corporate talking points. No, we do this podcast all on our own. We sell all the ads. We produce the audio. We handle everything. And that's why the discourse here is real and unfettered. Ben, I heard a rumor that the CME right now might be under attack by some corporate fat cats. Can you confirm or deny that? Yeah, I didn't want to get into this, um, but it's true. uh, Like people have been talking about technocrat billionaire Jorel Skink, who I'm sure we're all familiar with. uh, I hate that guy. He made his money off the the video uh, sharing platform Bloop. um, And... Honestly, a lot of people say he's just a Nepo baby who had one good idea and has been riding it forever. And now he's trying to take his billions and get into the exciting and endlessly profitable world of podcasts. It seems that he has targeted the CME for acquisition. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we don't want that to happen for a number of reasons. I mean, could we sell out, cash out big time by selling to Jor-El Skink? I mean, I, I guess we could, but... 
Already, Chad, I've seen his plans, and our yeah. plans are better. For instance, <laughs> there's talk that uh, he would immediately institute something he's calling CME Platinum, where he would charge people money just to say the words, listener mail, just to even utter the phrase, are you fucking kidding me? And honestly, that's just not what we want to see the CME become. We want to see it remain free and unfettered, but uh, we need the help of the people. Yeah. We need the yeah. people to, to sign up on Patreon, join the team, become contributing members, friends of the podcast, uh, so that we can stave off this hostile takeover. Yeah, you said it, brother. We can only keep making this show with the support of our awesome listeners. Please consider joining this month over at the CME Patreon page at patreon.com slash co-main event. Ben Folks and I are over there cranking out additional content all week long. And if you don't believe us, well, this month we're going to give you a little taste. For the next two weeks, we'll be rolling out our full weekly Patreon content for free right here in your podcast feed. So you can check it out. Maybe you'll like it. Maybe you'll want to join. But wait, there's more. We want to let you know that annual subscriptions for our Patreon page are now available. This goes for if you are a new subscriber or a current patron who wants to switch over to the annual deal. You pay for the year up front. This obviously is great for us, but it helps you too because you save on sales tax and monthly processing fees. And by the way, if you join now with an annual membership during pledge month, you get 10% off for a limited time only. Plus, and this is the big one. If you subscribe or upgrade to an annual membership at the $10 or $20 level, we'll send you a shirt for free. That's right. If you screenshot your receipt from an, from an annual membership and email it to us at comaineventpodcast at gmail.com, we'll let you go into our merch shop at comaineevent.com, pick a shirt, pick the size, and we'll send it to you for free. Unfortunately, this deal is only for subscribers in the U.S. because, frankly, we can't afford to be sending shirts all over the damn world. Yeah. But go, go check expensive. it out. There are new shirt designs up right now at CME.com. We just launched them over the weekend. Cool designs by our guy Johnny Ashcroft in Portland at Studio Superconductor. Hit them up with all your design needs. So there it is. Come party with us. We think it's the funnest, smartest, most welcoming group of men and women talking fights online. But if you don't believe us, here's our guy Brandon Boyd from St. Louis to tell you about it. Hit us up at patreon.com slash co-main event. Hey, this is Brandon Boyd from St. Louis, Missouri, and I think the best thing about the CME Patreon is the community. I think we all know that the MMA community isn't the most friendliest or uh, most hospitable people that you'll ever meet. Uh, I've met some people on the CME Discord that I would consider friends and have no problems talking about sports, personal life, anything, and there's always, always going to be somebody there for you to laugh to cry to it doesn't matter it's one of the best communities that you'll ever see in mma or possibly even on the internet thanks we got music this week from our guy old school cme listener kyle kelly yonner who also happens to be a drummer of tremendous skill he's on tour right now ben with the band Bay Ledges, you and I went out and saw him in Missoula, got to meet Kyle. He's a very cool guy. This past week, they just played Red Rocks down there in uh, in Colorado. That's pretty sweet because that's an awesome venue. Yeah, I've uh, been enjoying following their exploits via the Grams. 
yeah, no, he's a good, he's a good grammar, Instagrammer, poster. He's a good poster over on the IG, over on the grams. If you like what you hear from him on the show, you can find the rest of his solo EP at his website, kyleky.com, or follow him, like we said, at kylekydrums over on Instagram. Three rounds, as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, it was a great weekend for all Jermaine Sterling, defeating MMA great Henry Cejudo in pretty much his hometown to retain his men's bantamweight title and set up a lucrative fight with Sean O'Malley. But somehow it actually wasn't that great. And in round number two, to paraphrase a completely different Gilbert, man, why Bilal Muhammad always getting fucked? It wasn't his fault Gilbert Burns hurt his shoulder early in their fight, but that win probably isn't going to get him where he wants to go. And in round number three, Demetrius Johnson settled the score in his trilogy with Adriano Moraes this weekend at one championship. DJ may not quite be done yet, but it already feels like MMA will never quite give him the respect he deserves. All that, plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff, but first, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Ben, everybody knows we recently welcomed back our friends at Fulton and Rourke as a sponsor of the CME. We love these guys. We love their products. I've pretty much used all of them at this point, whether that be their solid fragrances, their amazing bar soaps, the Formula 5 oil for your hair and skin, their aluminum-free deodorant. In fact, I've got all those things in my bathroom right now. We also recently told you about their new fragrance, Highway 190, which they're really excited about. And here's the thing, guys. You can order anything from Fulton & Rourke pretty much risk-free because of their 30-day no-questions-asked returns policy for all of their full-size products. Ben, tell the kids at home more about that. Yeah, Chad, when Fulton & Rourke started selling their products online years ago now, they were the new kids on the block. They didn't know if people would buy a brand they'd never heard of and fragrances they'd never smelled before. So it only seemed fair for Fulton & Rourke to have a really generous returns policy. As they started getting coverage in Men's Health, GQ, Esquire, and the Wall Street Journal, people did start checking them out. And amazingly, only about 1% of the total purchases were returned or exchanged. Almost 10 years later, that's still the case. This policy applies to everything but their introductory sample sets. So if you're on the fence about trying something out, you basically get a whole month to keep it, try it, see if it works for you. If you don't love it, you can send it back and they'll either refund your money or let you exchange it for something else. As always, CME listeners can save 20% off your order with the code CME20. Again, that's FultonandRourke.com and the code CME20. Our first piece of listener mail this week, Ben, comes to us from Oscar Eagle, who writes, It seems we figured out a long time ago, it's tough being one-dimensional in modern MMA, no matter how good that one dimension is. Somehow, Crone Gracie didn't get the memo, and is still out here butt-scooting and guard-pulling in 2023. (laughs) Now, I have a lot of respect for Crone as a grappler, but he's been away for four years and didn't seem to do any striking training. I guess you can look to guys like Habib and Askren, successful specialists, but every round starts on the feet, so learning to throw a punch seems like a good idea. Please discuss. This was uh, this was an eye-opening one yeah. from Crone Gracie out there making his return to the UFC for his first fight in a long damn time. First fight since Cub Swanson back in October of 2019. He goes out there against Charles Jourdain uh, and just didn't, didn't look like he had it. Just didn't look like he had all the skills that he needed out there to compete in this fight. And I don't know if that is because... 
he has neglected to train the striking for so long, or if it's because Charles Jourdain is so good that no matter how hard Crone Gracie worked, there was always going to be such a divide between him and Jourdain in the striking department that maybe his whole game plan was, I go out there, I get this guy on the ground one way or another, and I tap him out. But whatever, whatever the strategy was, man, it looked bad out there. Yeah. I wondered beforehand, and then only more so afterward, why was Crone Gracie back for this fight? Yeah. Like, what was it that brought him back here? Because when you haven't fought in, you know, since 2019, right? Where he fought that, that one with Cub Swanson. Yeah. Um, which I love that the, when we're doing the sort of rehash highlight reel before he fights, where we're like, oh, we had a great fight with Cub Swanson. We're not going to mention who won. Just that it was a great fight. And, you know, he's got his jujitsu school out there outside Bozeman. From what I hear, that thing is doing well. And so then to show back up now after it seems like, all right, maybe you kind of, you jumped in with minimal MMA experience. You graduated up the ranks pretty quickly, in part because of name value, but in part because you were winning. You met a roadblock and then you disappeared for a while. Sometimes when a guy returns like that, it makes me wonder, is this a fight just to try to get done with the contract? Mm. Like, are you in a situation where you just want to be free and open to entertain other possibilities? And so you just want to get out from under it and, and fight out your remaining fights. Or is it something where you think, I've changed, I've improved, and I want to rededicate myself to MMA? Because the kind of performance that he went out there and gave, I felt like that doesn't seem like a guy who has spent the interval between his last fight, rounding out his game. Yeah. You know? that's yeah. Like, Dana White made some comment, one of the rare times I'm agree with Dana White, where he talked about it was like opening up like a time capsule kind of for like a different era of MMA when you see yeah. a guy out there jumping guard, butt scooting. And even if you're really good at that stuff, man, it's going to be hard to beat people just with that. Even somebody like Demian Maya had to learn to round out his game in a way that it would feed into his strengths, not just going out there and hoping that you will consent to, to fight him on the ground. Crone Gracie, if he really wants to be about MMA, is going to have to figure out something like that too. And it just didn't seem like that had been, that was anywhere in the preparation for this, at least as far as what we saw. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up that Dana White quote because I was going to mention it too because I guess we, to be fair, we got to give it up to the guy when he's right. And he was right about this one when he said that time's capsule from 1995. Also clever for Dana White. That's a that's yeah. a clever joke by his standards. Uh, do you think we see Crone Gracie fight again? I guess that depends on what the motivations really were. Because if it was right. a let me hurry up and get out of a UFC contract kind of fight, then I guess, you know, if there's more fights on the contract, then you probably got to keep showing up until you're you're through with them. If if it was a thing, though, of trying to just figure out if you still can compete, figure or you got the, the itch to compete and you wanted to go out there and see if you could still do it, I think that a fight like this ought to show you that you either need to make some big changes or you need to think about being a jiu-jitsu guy full-time. Yeah. Because coming in yeah. there with this against, you know in that division against the guys that the USC is going to have for you to fight. Because frankly, the way you get up on the main card here in a pay-per-view is by having Gracie as your last name. That's Correct. how. Yeah. And so that part's not going to change. They're going to they're not going to give you a whole lot of easy ass fights. This one wasn't even particularly challenging in terms of like who else they could have chosen for him. 
so if you're not going to be really trying hard to evolve and become a better all-around fighter, then what are you doing it for? Yeah, and 34 years old, this might have been the last time that we see him in the in the cage. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Darkwing Duck, who writes, It was cool to see Movsar Evilev move to 17-0, but spare some words for the kid Diego Lopez. Punk rock haircut? Check. Terrible <laughs> tattoos? Check. Game as fuck attitude? Check. Dangerous from the guard position, unlike some other BJJs on this card we could mention? Ooh. That's a shot at Crone, I think. Yep. Check. Special cage side gab session with Dana White to let him know he'd still be getting his win money? Check. This guy maybe seems like an exciting addition. Agree? I think so. Like, uh, he caught uh, a hot one in Movsar Ivalev stepping in as a late replacement here in order to make his UFC debut, but I feel like he opened a lot of people's eyes and uh, didn't win the fight, obviously, but was, as Darkwing Duck describes him here, game as fuck, and looked, honestly, super dangerous, especially off off his back, where he was chaining together one submission after another and seemed either on the verge of getting a couple of them or, you know, did apparently appear to get that knee bar at the end of the fight that just Evilev wasn't going to tap to it with, what, 20, 15 seconds left or whatever it was. And so, yeah, I was super impressed and, frankly, will be excited to watch Diego Lopez fight again. Yeah, I'm impressed with anybody who can come in and do that in the uh, extremely late notice UFC debut. Because we've seen a lot of times a UFC debut, you don't see the best version of that fighter just because it's a, a real thing to get the jitters on the big stage, being in the octagon for the first time. And a lot of people have had shitty debuts and went on to have great careers in the UFC. So I'm always a little forgiving of those but then to do it on, like, to take the fight the week of and show up and do it, that's really impressive to me. And against a guy like Mosar Ivalev, where obviously he's pretty good. So, like, to just seem that poise and that comfortable in your first fight that you took that week, like, shit, man, yeah. I, hard to even consider that one a loss, really, uh, when you yeah. do that well. Yeah. Uh, well, again, that's pretty much what Dana White said to him after the fight cage side he's like you didn't lose anything you're gonna get your win money and then we'll probably give you another fight uh, i wonder if it's sometimes it's better to take the the well maybe not always but in this case maybe better to take the ufc debut kind of on short notice maybe you don't have time to build it up in your mind as this big thing that's like you're the biggest opportunity of your fighting career or whatever maybe you're just like well fuck it i'm gonna get in there and uh, do the best I can against Movsar Evilev and let it all hang out and see where the see where we're at at the end. It might be, uh, you know, psychologically it could work in your favor in some ways. Yeah, I mean, if you've been staying in the gym, I suppose. Well, he looked like he has been in the gym, frankly. In the Did gym he? and in the barber's chair, just being like, "Fuck me up, fam." Yeah. <laughs> Don't even care. <laughs> all right, next question this week comes to us from Scott Hall, former okay. and now deceased professional wrestler, who starts with, "Hey, Too yo, sweet." Yeah. So maybe this is actually Scott Hall. I mean, that that is how he would start an email. It definitely is. Uh, Yan Xiaonan may have sewed up an all-China title fight with Zhang Weili, and people are already talking about having the fight in China. This sounds great to me, but could the UFC really throw something like that together on kind of brief notice? Or are they just going to say fuck it and have it at the apex? Uh, you mentioned the surprising nature of Yan Xiaonan's Second first round KO over Jessica Andrade, which was 
surprising on a lot of different levels. Jessica Andrade, I believe, also a late notice replacement fighter here, uh, but came in as the betting favorite and uh, gets knocked out. And it does seem like Zhang Wiley and Yan Zhaonan could have an amazing uh, title fight, and I- I'm all for it. And we know that the UFC has long coveted this kind of international expansion in places like China and Russia and the Middle East and everywhere everywhere else that they can get their foot in the door. Do you think they can throw this together? I, in some ways, agree with Scott Hall here that perhaps it would be surprising if they kind of on the fly were able to get a show booked in China, but maybe not. Well, I guess it depends what kind of a timeline we're talking about here. Because it's not like you got to do it, you know, by end of the month. Uh, so you got to do it. I don't know. Ask Francis Ngano about that. You got a hard <laughs> charging UFC pay per view schedule here. You got a little bit of time to plan for it. And honestly, because the UFC has for so long wanted to really expand and break into the Chinese market, if you have a fight like this and you don't do it in China, that seems like a huge missed opportunity. Yeah. Because you're not going to get endless chances like this that are really setting you up for something where you go in there and be like, okay, look, th- this one is tailor-made for this market and could be a really big thing for you to really expand viewership and expand interest there. And, you know, also be like a legit good ass fight too. So yeah. I, even if you had to delay it a little bit to make it fit on the calendar, it'd be really disappointing if you were like, well, and this would actually honestly be a super UFC thing to do, to just be like, well, we wanted to do it in September, but it turned out we would have had to wait all the way till October. So fuck it, Apex. Yeah. That would be some sad-ass shit. Like, this yeah. one deserves to be like in a big arena in China. I agree. Next question this week comes to us from HB, who writes, Seems to me that the for two weeks in a row, the UFC has failed to present the most compelling fight card of the weekend. Got beat last week by BKFC and this weekend by one. Maybe dicking around with slap fighting and not paying attention to or not paying the top heavyweight in the world is starting to have an effect. The company just seems extremely lazy and appears to be just going through the motions. No innovation, no personality, no fun. Uh, I guess I did mention at the top of the show that this UFC 288 did did feel a little lackluster uh, as compared to some of the other UFC pay-per-views we've seen this year. But, you know, we talked about all last week, Henry Cejudo and Aljamain Sterling was legitimately a great fight on paper, probably should have gotten more attention. Uh, sometimes it's hard to sell these fights at bantamweight and flyweight down there in the, the lower weights of the men's divisions. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I agree that sometimes it feels like especially the figurehead president of the UFC is kind of going through the motions. And at this point, the UFC has figured out that as long as they keep turning the crank and the sausage keeps coming out the other side, that they're going to make essentially the same amount of money, no matter what. Uh, But there's, I mean, certainly I wouldn't call any of the lower or mid-level people who work at the UFC lazy. I think that those people are absolutely ground to dust by the UFC's entire live event schedule and the sometimes mercurial wins of or whims of that uh, figurehead promoter. And so uh, I don't know if I would apply the word lazy, but it sure seems like they are content right now to kind of throw out whatever they have and just kind of take whatever comes from it. Yeah, I think as far as executive leadership goes, they're kind of they they're like McDonald's at this point where they feel like listen we got a 
streamlined operation where we know exactly how it works all the time. And hey, we must be great at it because look at all the money we're making. We don't need to change anything or learn anything new or try any real innovative stuff because we're making a ton of money. And that is the goal for us is to make a ton of money. And so therefore, why would we change when we're making a ton of money? And it does feel a little bit like it's similar to McDonald's. There's a good and a bad aspect of the uniformity to it because one of the ways that they are holding on to a fan base is by conditioning them to expect every Saturday night is going to be a fight, pretty much. The odd Saturday night will take off, but you can expect that pretty much every Saturday night, UFC is going to come to you. It's going to look the same. It's going to feel the same, regardless of whether it has some of the best people in the world or a bunch of people you never fucking heard of. It's going to look and feel the same. Similar to where, you know, the peel of a McDonald's is you walk into one in your hometown or you walk into one when you're on vacation in Florida, you walk into one in New York City, it's going to be the same. And that I think that they've really leaned on and that has worked to generate a consistent audience and that helps when you're making your guaranteed money from somebody like ESPN because you can just go to them and be like, this is the audience base that we bring no matter what, kind of no matter what. Doesn't matter if we have a great fight card or if we're just throwing on some content. We're going to get you a certain amount of people. But I also think that you have all these other organizations that have to be a little innovative to get our attention. They're constantly trying to come up with the solution to that. And they are, in some ways, nipping at the UFC's heels because the UFC doesn't want to try or do anything different. You could see it even in the little details like the fight posters and stuff where it's just like the UFC is just kind of rinsing and repeating when it comes to fight promotion because they feel like they got it figured out. Like, don't need to do anything different. We're killing it. Uh, And I think that a lot of that just is the leadership that comes from Dana White being like, I'm the fight genius. Uh, It's the right choice because I made it. Therefore, why would we do anything different? Right. Yeah. All right. Next question this week. This is going to be the other side of the coin here. We got this question from uh, HB that we read about if the UFC is, is no innovation, no personality, no fun. Here's one from our guy, Devin Scott, who writes... This coming weekend's Rosenstrike versus Almeida card is surprisingly good. Which of the main card bouts intrigues you the most? Jarzino Rosenstrike versus Jailton Almeida, Anthony Smith versus Johnny Walker, Daniel Rodriguez versus Ian Gary, or Alex Morono versus Tim Means? Uh, I mean, I guess I got to take the obvious one off the top, and that is to see if the hot heavyweight prospect in Jailton Almeida can get over what amounts to obviously his biggest test in the UFC to date, a real step up in competition to fight one of these guys in the biggie boy, who seems like if not a gatekeeper, he is like has one foot in that heavyweight elite level and one foot out of it. And so I feel like that's a a good test for Jailton Almeida. And I'd also just say, uh, continue to be interested to see what Ian Gary will do. Yeah. The 25 year old Irishman, he is 11 and 0 in the UFC. He's won four fights in a row now. And so, uh, I'm interested to see what that guy will too, but I'm, you know, I ain't going to sneeze at Anthony Smith versus Johnny Walker. Like give it to me. It's mine. I'll watch that all day long. Yeah. I, I mean, I like Anthony Smith and I'm always interested to see when he fights and to see how he'll come back from, you know, we got, he broke his, his ankle. Was it in that, uh, Magomed Ankalaya fight last summer? And so I, I want to see good things happen for him. And also if he's going to go and fight noted MMA weirds mobile, Johnny Walker, I'm absolutely interested in that. For me, though, the kind of the the sneaky most interesting thing is the Ian Gary fight because it seems like 
the UFC would definitely like to see Ian Gary be successful. We're putting up him up here against you know Daniel Rodriguez, who is, seems like a little bit of a step up, but also like the kind of fight that Ian Gary probably should win and that the UFC kind of like to see him win. And it's sort of a let's see if our faith in you is well-placed sort of fight. Um, also, you know, I'm not going to turn up my nose at the Dirty Bird and Alex Moreno, but don't don't think you were going to get out of here and have me not even mention Matt Brown versus Court McGee, a fight on the prelims that feels yeah. like it, it, you want to talk about opening up a time capsule. This one could be from 2013 and just you snuck it back in here at this point and act like nobody even noticed. Like, how have these guys not fight two times already? Yeah, uh, that that's the featured prelim. I mean, you got Jessica Rose Clark, you got uh, Chase Sherman, you got uh, some fights here on the preliminary card that you probably could have tossed in on UFC 288, and they would have helped out your cause there. This this fight card was supposed to have Mackenzie Dern and Angela Hill on it as well. So this is, for whatever reason, I guess this one is on ABC, so you got that going for you, but this is this is a... Uh, this is a big time fight card, big, especially as fight nights go. Probably yeah. one you're going to want to watch. All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. I will make a note that we got a couple of compelling Henry Cejudo emails that I'm going to try to work into round number one as we get into talking about that fight. So stay tuned for that. If, that, if one of those is yours or if you want to hear it, we'll do that later. But if you got a question, comment or concern to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. Go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Right now, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Well, Ben, I don't love starting the round this way because Aljamain Sterling got the win on Saturday. He beat Henry Cejudo. He retained his title. I think it's a pretty big win for him in the scope of his career and his championship reign. But I got to say, man, I thought that the way that he approached this fight, or at least the way it played out in the cage for Aljamain Sterling, was kind of bizarre. And in the end, after he essentially gives away the fifth round, I don't know if he felt like he was ahead or if he was just tired or he just couldn't get the Ferrari out of first gear. It turns out he would have lost this thing without a totally insane scorecard from the judge, Derek Cleary, who awarded the fifth round to Aljamain Sterling, which was one of the only rounds of this fight that I feel like we could all agree that he did not win. That one was a Henry Cejudo round all the way. And that ends up being the difference, man. This just completely off-the-wall fifth-round scorecard from Derek Cleary. And that's how close Aljamain Sterling came to to losing this fight. And that's how close Henry Cejudo came to winning it. 
And if, if that scorecard alone had been different, we'd be sitting here having a very different conversation on Monday. Yeah, didn't this one seem as it was happening like, oh, this is going to be some absolutely nuts scorecard stuff just because yeah. the kind of fight it was? Yeah, it was a classic men's bantamweight competitive fight where when you get to the end of it, you're like, well, I think Aljamain Sterling won, but the scorecards could be all over the place. And in fact, they were. Because I think like only there was only two rounds or something that the judges agreed on that Aljamain Sterling won. So, you know, I think they came to the correct decision in the end because I did think Aljamain Sterling won this fight. But how they arrived there is a complete mystery to me. Yeah. Well, and I can kind of get that just because when you're watching this fight, it's not like in too many of these rounds, there's any one big moment where you're like, okay, that that one seals that one for that guy. No, no discussion there. Or even like there's prolonged periods where you're like, one guy is absolutely dominating here. Because each guy kind of got to do some of his stuff, you know? And there were moments where it looked like Aljamain Sterling is in control here. And then there were other moments where it looks like, man, he's shooting from way far out, not really getting close. And uh, Henry Cejudo looks like he's taking advantage of some of that stuff. And so it's like, yeah. I, I can understand how it would be sort of a tricky one to score, but you're right that it did seem like Aljo kind of thought he had that one way more sewn up than it turned out he did. Yeah, you should never think that ever in a championship <laughs> fight when you've got these judges out there. This is what I was talking about when I said that I thought his uh, approach was bizarre. What was he even doing shooting for those takedowns in the middle of the cage? Because even if you are winning and even if a defended takedown isn't necessarily supposed to count for anything in the actual scoring criteria of MMA. That does not look good for the judges, man. When you are yeah. shooting a takedown and you're letting the other guy sprawl out on top of you and basically push you down face first into the mat by your head and your neck. And then in the corner, you got Ray Longo at one point even being like, hey, I think, you know, I think we got him faked out with these takedown attempts. I don't think we need to do any more of them. We can just go high kick to the head. We could fake one and go high kick to the head. And immediately after that, Aljamain Sterling's out there shooting another takedown. I have, I have no idea what he was doing with those. It is interesting that when you look at the scorecards, the only two rounds that all three judges agreed on and saw exactly the same were the first round and the fourth round. Yeah. And, and those they all had for Aljamain Sterling. And so it's, you know, as much as the scorecards end up being sort of all over the place, that is one thing that maybe tells you something. If the only times they really agreed it was in Aljamain Sterling's favor, then okay. And I can't watch that fight and come away and be like, Henry Cejudo was robbed. No, you can't you know? say that. Um, I also, though, it, I do sort of feel like the same things we were saying before the fight, like Henry Cejudo could be a tough matchup for Aljamain Sterling if he is exactly as sharp and as quick and as good as he was when he left. And he wasn't quite, you know, yeah. which honestly, he was not bad for having been off three years and having gone from a guy who was in his early 30s to a guy in his mid 30s. Like that was still a very good showing for uh, Henry Cejudo in all those circumstances. It just sort of highlights what a big ask it was for him to ask of himself to come back after three years away and be just as good. Because yeah. even being just a little bit off, you could see moments where it just seemed like a little bit slower, a little bit rustier, a little bit uh, slower to make some of the decisions or make some of the adjustments. And in a fight that close, that's all it takes. Yeah. 
Uh, I want to say one more Aljamain Sterling thing, and then I'll get into these questions that we got. But Aljamain Sterling gets booed, you know, essentially not necessarily right in his hometown, but pretty dang close. It's across the river. Yeah. He gets, he gets booed by the live crowd. Uh, We got a couple of very anti Aljamain Sterling emails this week. And it's just like, I don't know, man. I thought that the way he approached this fight was a little suspect, but in general, I feel like Aljamain Sterling is a terrific fighter. He's a champion for a damn reason. I don't, I mean, sometimes he plays into this heel gimmick where he was kind of like, fuck you, New Jersey, or whatever he said afterwards. But like, I don't necessarily think that he is like a bad person or he doesn't seem offensive to me. And he just seems, you know, kind of like a guy who never really gets his credit no matter what he accomplishes. And that just seems weird to me. Yeah. I had the thought where, you know, you see him in this fight. It's not exactly a spectacular fight. It's close enough that people who don't like him are going to argue. Maybe it should have gone the other way. People are going to boo him anyway. Um, But then when Sean O'Malley gets in the cage, takes off his Michael Jackson jacket and gets up in the face, he's shouting some shit. I felt like, okay, I can already see how this is going to go. Especially with the the sort of brotastic elements of the UFC fan base, there are going to be a lot of people who can't wait to rally behind Sean O'Malley and against Aljamain Sterling. And you know what? If you're Aljo, maybe you just got to lean into it at this point. You know, yeah. maybe you got to be just be the fuck you New Jersey kind of guy uh, from here on out because uh, trying to win some of these people over at this point is it's not working. You, you'd probably be better off to just antagonize them and become that guy and let them boo you as long as they paid to show up and do so. Yeah, here are Aljamain Sterling's most recent wins. Corey Sandhagen, Peter Yawn twice. Of course, one of those was a DQ. Then you got TJ Dillashaw and Henry Cejudo. You can kind of undercut any one of those if you want to, but that actually is an, ex- an impressive string of names, at least on the, the win-loss record. Although now you got this fight with Sean O'Malley, which shapes up to maybe be the highest profile fight if the, the thing's that we think we know about Sean O'Malley's popularity are true. Seems like kind of a big lucrative fight for Aljamain Sterling in the bantamweight division. And also like kind of seems like Sean O'Malley might be a tricky matchup for Aljamain Sterling, just given kind of his size advantage and how mobile he is. And everyone's talking about his underrated grappling. I guess we'll have to wait till they get out there to see it, but I don't know. Sean O'Malley and Aljamain Sterling seems like kind of a great fight to me. It does, and it seems like the kind where the UFC really puts some promotional muscle behind it. You ought to be able to make that one feel like a big thing, probably more so than any of the other Aljo fights you've had so far. Yeah. All right, I wanted to get to this question from Shoulders, Chest, Pants, Shoes. Nice. Our our old buddy writes, Is this a more important outcome than realized for Henry Cejudo, considering we just lost our only potential hope for the UFC's first three-weight champion? If the decision swings Cejudo's way, he is now on track to potentially becoming C4 in the near distant future and perhaps cement him as the greatest combat sports showman ever. But at the same time, couldn't he just go up to 145 and Max Holloway anyway, who doesn't have much to do at the time being and insert himself into featherweight? Now, I mean, I, I kind of thought Henry Zahudo's comments about, oh, I was going to go up to featherweight and go after Alexander Volkanovsky were, I mean, I guess you got to believe in yourself, but I was kind of like, okay, Henry, I don't know about that. Yeah, especially if it's going to be that version of Henry Cejudo, you're, you're biting off a lot to try yeah. to go up there. 
I guess you could, if you're trying to talk yourself into it, you could tell yourself, hey, maybe the best chance I'm ever going to get is when Featherweight has its shortest champion that it has seen <laughs> in many years. You know? Yeah. You could, I guess you could do worse and be like, all right, this is the, the guy is going to kind of meet me halfway <laughs> on one of the biggest problems I would have if I went up to that weight class. Uh, but I think that version of Henry Cejudo against Volk, uh, he gets, he gets worn around like a hat. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think, I mean, he's, he's great. And I really admire his mental approach. He's got the, the, the psychology of a champion for sure. But I just think 145 would be a tough weight class for him, even if he was still at his best. That's just, that's, uh, you're biting off a lot there. Let's squeeze yep. this one in from Joshua Pritchard over on Patreon. He writes, I wanted to chime in on the Cejudo topic. I believe that the reason I still have a hard time putting him in the GOAT conversation, even if he wins on Saturday, this one came in before UFC 288, is that he didn't have a sustained period of being the champion and knocking off contender after contender. I can promise you that it has nothing to do with his cringe stuff. I try not to consume any of that, but I also do think that the pillow thing is weirdly endearing. When I think about the how space that is populated by GSP, Spider, Fedor, John Jones, and even Jose Aldo, now maybe Habib, Volkanizzi, I always take into account the runs of dominance. Habib, not so much the defenses, but the run leading up to his championship. Cejudo and Connor are more or less the same to me with the fluky wins. Uh, damn it, but they still count. And no long runs of defenses. Just my two cents. Love you both as much as you love me. So there's that. Well, okay, that's a fair point, and those are just kind of different ways to go about it. I kind of can't blame a guy for, you know, he becomes champion and is in his early 30s or whatever and is trying to make the most of it. And this sport has kind of taught fighters, I think. The way to really get our attention is to go after belts in multiple divisions. And we reward that with our attention and our praise and so it only makes sense that fighters are going to continue to keep doing it. And especially if you look at the context in which Henry Cejudo came up to become flyweight champion at a time when Demetrius Johnson had been an incredibly dominant flyweight champion and the ongoing talking point about it was that nobody gave a shit. Yeah. And so if you tell me that he absorbed all that messaging consciously or subconsciously and it got in his head and he thought the thing to do is to get that belt and then go up a weight class and get another one. The one thing that Demetrius Johnson really wouldn't do unless the UFC gave him more money, which obviously they weren't going to do because why would they do that? Um, they're doing this on a budget to begin with. So if he, if he thought that's the way to really put my stamp on this and to show that I am different and I am special, I can't blame him for thinking that was the the way to do it. You know, because the, the, that long stretch of dominance did not really get rewarded by fans when it came to Demetrius Johnson. Yeah, he's a he's a little bit of a product of his times, I think, just sort of coming to the top of the, of the division at the time when champ champs were all the rage and flyweight was a little bit down, et cetera, et cetera. So I can't blame him for it either. I do think that this Aljamain Sterling fight, like we talked about last week, I think on the Power Hour over on the Patreon page, I thought was a big fight for Henry Cejudo in terms of legacy. You know, look at the the political capital that we gave George St. Pierre for coming back out of retirement and moving up to uh, middleweight and beating Michael Bisping. Obviously, at men's bantamweight, Aljamain Sterling is a much bigger 
uh, bite of the apple than Michael Bisping was at middleweight. And if Henry Cejudo would have won this, then I think you're looking around thinking, where do we put this guy on the all-time greats list? And he, and he did come close, man. He came damn close. Yeah. Like I said, Darren, Derek Cleary's scorecard is the only thing that separated Henry Cejudo from that win. I saw this floated. It might have been in an email. It might have been on Twitter. I don't remember. But someone was theorizing that Derek Cleary had worked himself into a shoot with his scorecard where like, as you're watching it round and round, you're like, Oh, that one, that one was close. I'll give that one to Henry. And then like, you know, another one, Oh, that's a close one. I'll give that to Cejudo. But maybe you're thinking all Jermaine Sterling is kind of winning the fight. And then you get to the fifth round and you're like, Oh shit. If I score this round for Cejudo, he wins. So, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're kind of, maybe that's an apology round for all Jermaine Sterling in a way. I mean, we if we start trying to get inside the heads of judges, we're going to drive <laughs> ourselves insane. That is true. That's a good point. All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, I know we have a joint Are You Fucking Kidding Me? this week because this one kind of wrote itself. Uh, we gave Dana White his credit earlier in the show for saying a couple of things that we thought were right and that we agreed with and maybe were even kind of clever. Then someone asks him about the Power Slap League in the post-fight press conference. And man, did the bullshitting start. The bullshit got deep, Ben Folks. Once the power slap uh, league came up, do you have any of these quotes handy? Because these were doozies, among other things. Dana White saying that the power slaps numbers on social media, I believe, were bigger than all of the other mainstream sports combined, which no, they fucking aren't. Yeah, <laughs> it is. This one really is quite incredible because we've talked before about how sometimes it's tough to know. If Dana White realizes he is lying, or if he is repeating a lie that maybe somebody else told him. Yeah, no, I 100% think somebody showed Dana White some numbers. That definitely happened. Now, what those numbers were and what he took away from them and what he is willing to sit up on the die and say in front of the media who do not matter in his words, that's a different different conversation, I think. Yeah, it's just kind of like... What Dana White says here is that they, the first of all, money-wise, it has been incredible to do the slap show, but also social media numbers-wise, they are the biggest sport on social media. If you take everything else combined, that's just that not true. That's not. And he true. just starts naming off all the sports, including you know, like car racing and all the other big sports and everything. If you take them all and combined, Slap Show beats them on social media, which is obviously untrue. And it yeah. seems like the kind of thing where Dana White paid some company to be like, eh, give us an assessment of how we're doing on social media. And maybe they looked around or somebody else who uh, works for Dana White looked around and be like, well, history tells us that the way to deal with this guy is just to tell him that he is a massive success. Similar to when he was saying the stuff about we're watching people's house for them to turn on the pirated pay-per-view or listening to the phone calls. We got you. And then when I talked to the UFC executives about it, and they were like, well, no, I mean, we're not actually technically doing that. <laughs> this seems like the same kind of thing, doesn't it? Because otherwise, what you're asking us to believe is that the most popular sport in the world by social media metrics more popular than all the other ones combined. Combined. Not just more popular than football or basketball or baseball. Combined. Put them together. And it's still more popular. And you want us to believe that the sport that has that going for it 
streams exclusively on a right-wing video streaming platform mm-hmm. that went from TV to a niche right-wing video streaming platform because it's so successful. Really? Yeah. You fucking kidding me with that? Yeah. Like, it's such an outrageous lie that I can't decide if Dana White is just sort of fucking with us by being yeah. like, not only is this thing not a failure, it's the <laughs> biz- biggest success in the history of successes. Yeah. Or if somebody was just like, listen, I didn't get this job as Dana White's minion by telling him the truth, the unpleasant truth. I'm going to tell him, you know what? It's going great. How great? Oh, it's the biggest sport in, on social media. Yeah, really? It's bigger than this? Psh, boss is bigger than all of them. Combined. All of them put together. Yeah. They, they uh, don't even, they, they, they stopped trying to keep track of the numbers because the numbers were too huge. They just, yeah. they just, they sent us a certificate that said you're number one. I'm going to laminate it. You can put it up on the office fridge. (laughs) I don't know who the reporter was from MMA mania that asked these questions, but I did kind of want to give him a shout out because he actually does kind of a good job pushing back a little bit on some of these things that Dana White says, at least by MMA media standards, he does an okay job. So I wanted to say that there were two other things that Dana White said during this rant though, that I want to also mention because it was almost like everything he said was horseshit. When he says the deal that I signed for the slab fight league is bigger than the deal that I signed for the ultimate fighter with spike TV after season one, that's like the same shit as when he bragged about trying to pay Francis and Brock Lesnar money, right? You signed the deal with spike TV in 2005, Yeah, it is now 2023. So saying that the deal you signed for the slap fight league has more dollars in it than the deal you signed for tough in 2005 is maybe not the flex that you think it is. The other thing he said was he says this a lot now. The media doesn't matter. Motherfucker, you have an entire division of your company whose job is to work with the media and provide them with information and set up shit that they can do to give your company publicity. But the media doesn't matter? Oh, I mean, okay, I guess. You fucking kidding me? Yeah. I mean, the other thing is that Dana White is going to sit there and say, this is part of his quote, most of you guys don't understand social media. And how it works. Okay. That must be it. (laughs) Because I'll tell you what I do understand. Anytime I see this shit show up on social media, a bunch of UFC fans immediately are like, fuck you. Stop (laughs) using the UFC accounts to do this stuff. I hate this. This is so dumb. I mean, Maybe that's the path to the greatest social media numbers ever, is just getting people so angry about it and mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about how much they hate it. Yeah. No, that the numbers carry, just go so. through the roof. Yeah. Some real P.T. Barnum shit from Dana White. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. All right. We're going to go ahead and move on to round number two. Chad, the co-main event of UFC 288 was, or so we were told, to determine a future welterweight title shot. 
We all know what those promises are worth. However, Bilal Muhammad at least did what he could to hold up his end of the deal. He goes in there against Gilbert Burns and wins a clear, unanimous decision victory, the last two to three rounds of which seemed to focus a lot, at least on the commentary side, on how diminished Gilbert Burns is. I gotta wonder, you're coming out of this one, Bilal Muhammad, let's say you're in Bilal Muhammad's camp. He comes out of the cage, gets back to the locker room, won the fight, and he says to you, all right, so what do you think? I, I definitely got that title shot now, right? Like, they promised it to me. I won the fight I was supposed to win. I got it on lock, right, Chad? Do you go, well... I would show him the stuff Dana White said about the slap fight league, and then I would be like... <laughs> this is he's kind of the same thing as when he offers someone a title fight if they win a, a fight. They should just stop saying that. I mean, I know that they use it to, quote-unquote, sell the fight or whatever, but it's just like we all know at this point that it's not true. Everyone knows it except the two guys in the fight who convinced themselves that this is really the one for number one contender status. And then afterward, it's just not doesn't happen that way. I feel bad for Bilal Muhammad in sort of the same way that I kind of feel bad for Aljamain Sterling is that it just seems like he is never going to fully get the credit that he deserves. Because like I said at the beginning of the show, for starters, it's not his fault. In no way is it Bilal Muhammad's fault that Gilbert Burns appeared to hurt his arm or shoulder during a takedown attempt at the beginning of this fight that Bilal Muhammad sprawled out of. He shut down the takedown attempt and it seemed like that was when Gilbert Burns hurt his arm. That's not Bilal Muhammad's fault. And then he just has to fight the rest of the fight, man. Like that's the only thing he does. That's his job. That's what he's there to do. And I thought it was an impressive performance by him, regardless of what was going on with Gilbert Burns' arm, just what he was doing with the stance switches and the striking that he was showing. Like, even if Burns wasn't really able to fire the left hand, he still was dangerous with the other hand. And I don't know. I thought it was a good performance from Bilal Muhammad. I think he deserves a title shot. He's got the history with Leon Edwards, so in some ways it makes sense. I guess if you were the UFC and you told me you thought something else was going to make you more money, I might believe that but at the same time God, i don't know i just feel bad for him man it seems like he, that he's just gonna have to keep fighting until he loses one like they're gonna make him keep fighting until he no longer has this win streak well, yeah and this was another one i want to go ahead and point out that i called this one again that blah muhammad keeps showing up for these fights and keeps being the betting underdog sometimes he'll even start as the favorite and then end up as the underdog by the time the betting closes and yet he keeps winning them this is the fourth straight time that has happened where he was the underdog in this one, won the fight anyway. And I also think, I mean, if you wanna if you wanna find a way to undercut the value of that win, you could be like, well, okay, Gilbert Burns looked like he hurt himself. Also, Gilbert Burns fighting his second fight in a month's time. But you can't really blame Bilal for that. You know, that that is all on the other side, out of his control. All he can do is go out there and win the damn fight, uh, which he did here. And it seems like Either you're going to get to a point where, hey, he's hanging around, he's available at a time when you need somebody available, uh, or you're just going to find like that you don't have any much better options at welterweight, and he's going to kind of get the title shot that way. I could definitely see, though, if there is a situation where they feel like there's some other big name, there's somebody who seems like a, the, the it guy of the moment where the UFC could absolutely justify being like, well, we weren't impressed with that one, we'll give your title shot away. I think, though, a lot might depend on who is the champion, you know? Yeah. Because I think if you wanted to run that 
uh, fight with Leon Edwards back, like, it, it makes some sense. He could be like, hey, I got poked in the damn eye, you know, uh, that one was never really decided. You, you can go in there, but I could also see the UFC looking at that one on paper and being like, so Bilal Muhammad versus Leon Edwards is the one, that's the milkshake we think is going to bring all the boys to the yard. I don't know, man. Yeah. It's just, uh, it seems like he keeps doing his job and he doesn't really get anything for it. I, so that's, it just makes me feel bad for the guy. Let's talk about the Gilbert Burns side of this thing for a minute. You just mentioned it. Here's a 36 year old man who had really, uh, been busy lately, man. This was his third fight in 2023. He just fought Jorge Masvidal less than a month ago on April 8th was their fight at UFC 287. He agreed to come into this one, uh, I, for reasons that I'm not totally clear on, like he wanted to stay busy. He thought he would have to probably fight or beat Bilal Muhammad at some point anyway. I'm not sure, but even aside from the arm injury, I mean, you could say that this guy just looked flat and tired and worn out having to go from fight camp to fight camp and weight cut to weight cut. That's that's just not easy, man. I think this like part of what was going on with Gilbert Burns here was just fatigue, fatigue from being so busy. Yeah. And that is a real thing that we've seen with a lot of guys, even guys where, you know, they stay in shape, they're tough guys. You fight that much and just put your body through so much that eventually one of those nights you're going to show up and it's not really going to be there for you. And it's one thing if you're fighting a bunch of schlubs, and you can afford that. But if you're fighting other guys that are in the top of the division, like Bilal Muhammad is, and, and a guy who's going to go out there, and if, if we know nothing else about Bilal Muhammad, he's going to fight smart. He's yeah. not going to do dumb shit. He's not going to take reckless chances. He's he's a smart, patient fighter, and especially over the course of a five-round fight. Man, to come back a month later, as you said, not only the training, but the weight cut and everything, and get back in there and fight five rounds with that guy, that's a lot to ask of yourself. You know? Agreed. Yeah. And like, just to engage in some reckless speculation, I don't know that it would have been Gilbert Burns's fight, even if he would have had two working arms like Bilal, Bilal Muhammad just looked so good and kept landing those body kicks. And he had such a size advantage. I just I have a hard time thinking Gilbert Burns turns the tide on that one, even if he is in 100 percent working order. Uh, but at the same time, you know, people are going to use that people who want to disregard or undercut Bilal Muhammad's win streak are definitely going to use that as to say, oh, he beat a one-armed Gilbert Burns. So, yeah. That's just one of the things we do, man. Yep. Alright, that's going to do it for round number two. We're going to be right back with round number three. Well, Ben, Demetrius Johnson settled the score with Adriano Moraes in their trilogy at one championship this week, getting the unanimous decision win and retaining his one championship flyweight title. This was a bit of a nondescript fight, kind of like the other two that we talked about. We had a lot of nondescript main events in the MMA world over the weekend, but Demetrius Johnson kind of comes on late during the second half of this five rounder and I believe very rightfully gets the unanimous decision win here. He had talked about retirement previous to this. He is also 36 years old, 
but kind of walked it back a little bit after this win, said he wasn't going to do anything rash, and also said that he was going to consult George St. Pierre and Habib Nurmagomedov about what they think about retirement, which is a totally Demetrius Johnson thing to do. A lot like we just said about Bilal Muhammad, you can always count on Demetrius Johnson to have a smart game plan, to be a smart guy, and to do the smart thing. And I would put that plan to talk to those two guys right in that same category. But this, you know, I got to say, even though this wasn't the most interesting or entertaining fight, 36-year-old Demetrius Johnson looked exactly the same to me as he has always looked. He doesn't seem like he has lost a step at all. It seemed like, at least for the time being, if he wants to come back and keep fighting, he has ever bit every bit the dangerous threat that he always has been. Yeah, and it's interesting. I guess if he would have said immediately in the cage afterwards that he was done, those kind of retirements have a mixed record of whether they stick, you know? And so to say that he's going to go talk to his wife, he's going to then consult other guys and be like, so tell me what you were thinking when you walked away. <laughs> I, For one thing, wouldn't you love to be on a, fl- a fly on the wall in the conversation of Demetrius Johnson calling up George St. Pierre and Habib? I, both uh, of them. I hope it's a three-way conference call. <laughs> you think he's going to get on the phone with like George and get him to say a whole bunch of stuff about Habib and then be like, <laughs> oh, I didn't tell you I had conferenced in Habib here. He's listening on the other line. Uh, just some real slumber party sabotage type yeah. style shit. Uh, first, you get the dinosaur. Maybe you get into the space alien. I have the <laughs> hobbies that keeping me busy. That's George St. Pierre giving out retirement advice. I don't know. It's not bad, honestly, yeah. if, as yeah. far as your impressions go. Uh, it, it was interesting. I, I, for a moment, when he appealed to the crowd to find out if they wanted to see him retire... I was a little bit worried that we might be about to get into a Paul Buentello, don't fear me, fear the consequences type situation. Like, you, you never know what you're going to get when you when you go to the crowd. Yeah. Let's- it's also kind of a nuanced question to ask the crowd because, you know, they might be like, I don't know, Demetrius, how do you feel physically and what do you think your family will say? Do you have your own best interests at heart? Yeah. It's almost not a yes, no thing. Yeah. Somebody that definitely is back there in the cheap seats cheering but also being like at this point i do wonder what you have left to accomplish (laughs) yeah no i agree i agree uh i want to talk about that a little bit because obviously demetrius johnson doesn't have anything left to accomplish if you start talking about this list that we read off earlier from the emailer about the greatest of all time if you want to talk about george st pierre habib nurmagomedov john jones fedor anderson silva jose aldo uh Demetrius Johnson deserves to be right up there in that yeah. mix. And honestly, near the top of it, I would think, you know, he's I, my goat is still George St. Pierre and John Jones is coming on the outside, maybe has a chance to overtake him. But I have I'm a hard pressed to put anyone else on that list before Demetrius Johnson, aside from those two guys. Yeah. He definitely at least deserves to be in that conversation, and I hope that as time goes by, we won't just forget him and that he will get to stay in that conversation. I do wonder, if you stay and and you're still going to fight on in one championship, I guess I go, well, who do you fight that gives you an opportunity to do anything new? with your career. And and maybe that's not his calculation at all. Maybe his is just like, if I feel good, if I feel like I'm still enjoying myself and I'm still capable and I, I'm not putting myself in any danger uh, or any, you know, undue danger, 
then why not keep doing it and keep collecting paychecks while I can? Because once that door shuts, it's not going to open again. I could absolutely see if that's his thing. But I felt like with this one, at least it's like he goes in there, he loses that first fight to Adriana Moraes, and you're just like, okay, now there's a thing to to work with here where he comes back, he wins the second one with that just amazing uh, knockout where the timing of it is just so impeccable. And then, okay, it makes sense to do a rubber match there. But now what? You know, like, because there's just not like a ton of known names out there that are even available for you to fight over there. Yeah. And I have no idea what his contractual status is. I will say he has very quietly gone five and one outside the UFC, just like, you know, was was part of the quote unquote trade that wasn't really actually a trade, but we have decided to call it a trade uh, with one championship where they sent uh, Ben Askren over to the UFC. And since then, it's not like he went away. He has been very, very good. He lost that one fight to Adriano Moraes and now has come back and beat him two times in a row. So I don't know, man. He deserves to be considered among the legends of this sport, Just, but just because of his position as the first flyweight champion back when that division was really having a hard time finding a foothold with fans, it seems like he will be a little bit overlooked, and I think that's kind of sad. That is kind of sad, and yet also kind of so very mma when you yeah. think about it. Yeah. All right, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we can get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, we didn't really mention it before, but uh, the handsomest man in MMA had kind of a tough night at UFC 288. He sure did. He sure did. I was just turning on the uh, the TV here to watch the, the pay-per-view card live, and I saw uh, Matt Frivola standing there in the middle of the ring, celebrating with his team and i thought to myself well shit well shit yeah that's about right um you know obviously i follow drew dober on the grams of course you obviously do. Yeah. Yeah. i've learned a lot from following him over there um for instance that while drew dober and i seem to have some things in common we definitely differ on other things like what does it mean for a pair of pants to fit mm-hmm. um you know drew likes a, a snugger fit than I do from I bet that's true from what I can tell yeah. um but you know what but, you uh, you just you're an appreciator of the human form I am yeah. and I I especially appreciate that you know this is a guy who when he has a fight coming up he's going to show you some shots of him in the gym but also not afraid to like get out there in a sports coat and a turtleneck or something to uh give you like a fashion shoot beforehand I'm just saying I appreciate the man's relentlessly positive attitude because he's going to show back up on the grams even after suffering a, a loss like that. Got a few new bruises on the face and everything, but just going to post just, you know, what looks like a, it could be the most popular picture on Grinder and smiling at the camera telling you that it's incredible just how much food he's eaten uh, since Saturday night. You know, kind of implying that maybe we're trying to fill a little bit of an emotional void. Um, but with, with perhaps, you know, frozen pizzas and chicken nuggets and whatnot, but I'm just saying, brother, we've been there. We all been there. Yes, sir. It's relatable content. And I appreciate Drew Dober just taking us all along on the ride with him. You can't win them all, but you can maintain a PMA, a positive mental attitude through it all. That's what Drew Dober, the handsomest man in MMA has done. And I think we should appreciate it. I'm just saying, just saying, I'm going to eat a whole pizza right after this. Try to fill the, the emotional void that this show never gets filled, never gets in, filled in my soul. I hate to do it, Ben folks, but I'm going to read this quote from Colby Covington. 
Oh, God. You should have warned me you were going to do this. <laughs> if anything, they're just trying to get rid of that racist. Remember the racist Bilal Muhammad. It's disgusting, man. The fact that he said I earn something on the color of my skin because I'm white. No, nobody earns. That's disgusting that you could ever look at someone like that and point fingers and judge them because of the colors of my skin. That's clear racism and no one walked it back. No one said sorry for it. None of this. So it's disgusting that that loser would say that. So I guess this week I'm just saying, man, if you didn't want your race to become a topic of conversation... Maybe you shouldn't have done the MAGA thing. Maybe you shouldn't have done that gimmick. Maybe it's, uh, maybe the two things are linked in ways that some of you guys don't want to publicly admit. Maybe the, you shouldn't have gone with the guy whose only real political conviction is his own racism. I don't know, man. I'm just saying. Wait, are you suggesting that there is some connection between donald trump and his whole political movement and racial identity huh i don't know i don't know where you're getting that from but that is an interesting theory i'm just saying just Just saying saying. wish we could leave race out of it says colby covington (laughs) all right buddy Okay, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. If you are a $20 patron of the podcast, we've got After Hours coming up right now. Uh, as for everybody else, thanks for listening. Remember, it's Pledge Month. Do us a solid. Go over to patreon.com slash co-main event and sign up to support the team. I can almost guarantee you won't regret it. I can almost guarantee it. As for right now, though, thanks for listening, everybody. We're done. We're through. We are out. That I know we're going to talk about a topic right in your wheelhouse for this after hours. A topic that get, hits close to home for Ben Folks. And that is this video that you posted on Twitter. That's where I saw it. Of Mark Zuckerberg's. Is this his first Brazilian Jiu Jitsu quote unquote match? I mean, the whole thing's like, what, five minutes long, three minutes long, something like that? Looked like a novice level. But did we see the whole thing or was this just an excerpt? It seemed like uh, he competed in a tournament and did both knee 